Well, as you know, this past week we had four of the men in our church spend the week in Denver on a mission trip. And because they were gone, Skylar asked if I could fill in this morning, give him time to focus just on Denver, and let me preach to fill in for him. I want to invite you back tonight, though. Those four men are going to share a mission trip report during our evening service, and I'm looking forward to hearing what God did and about the church up there that Trinity's partnered with for years to come. And so I invite you back at 6.30 to hear from our men who spent the week in Denver. Several years ago, I was talking to an older gentleman who told me that he has trouble sleeping at night, and it's not because he can't get comfortable. It's because all of the thoughts bouncing around in his head keep him awake at night. He can't seem to turn his mind off to be able to rest. I wonder if you're ever like that. Won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of us have had sleepless nights. We wake at 2 in the morning and we're awake till 3.30 because we can't get the thoughts to stop. Now, if you're one of those who literally 30 seconds after your head hits the pillow, you're asleep, I want to let you in on a little secret. The rest of us don't like you. We may pretend we like you and tolerate you, but we don't like you. Because we sometimes, if you're like me, struggle with that. I, I'm never asleep 30 seconds after my head hits the pillow. It would be interesting, I suppose, if we could put a list, if we knew the top 10 things that consume our minds, that we're preoccupied with, that we worry about. It might be very different. My list from yours might have nothing in common. But probably that happens to you. You're, you, you have daily pressures that create some anxiety, and you think about them through the day, and maybe even they keep you up at night because you can't just flip a switch and turn them off. We are told in 1 Peter chapter 5 to cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. But church, the very fact that, that the Bible needs that command to command us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us, that that shows us the fact that it's very natural for us to have those anxieties that we want to carry and not cast on him. It's, it's one of the most natural things in the world to have things that we worry about and we're preoccupied with. Rather than asking you what preoccupies your mind and may keep you up at night, let me narrow the question just a little bit. If I were to ask you rather than what keeps you up at night because you can't turn your mind off, if I were to ask you, do you ever have anything that keeps you awake at night because you're worried and preoccupied about it that's church-related? I wonder if we ever have that happen. Church-related concerns and worries and preoccupation that cause us to lose sleep or we get distracted during the day because they're heavy on our hearts. Do we care enough about God's church in general capital C, all of God's people? Or do we care enough about Trinity Baptist Church in particular that we feel the weight of it, that we think about things and we can't seem to turn them off? They're real concerns. They're actual anxieties that we have about God's people or the church. Or are the things that preoccupy our mind more just about us rather than the things of God? I'll have to confess to you that I have lost sleep over church things. And I'll be honest, sometimes those things have been terribly, terribly shallow. Other times, 
they've been more reasonable. I remember several years ago, Wendy and I have talked about it since then, I stayed up late one night reading an article in World Magazine, which is just a phenomenal Christian magazine. And the article, several pages long, described what the church in North Korea was facing. And I read through what believers over there go through. And one of the people they had interviewed was a believer who had spent time in a North Korean prison because of his faith. And when he escaped, they interviewed him. And at the end of the article, he had sketched out, and they had copies of it in the article, some of how they tortured believers in North Korean prisons. And I remember not being able to sleep that night. It was at least something a little more reasonable as I thought about the church in general and God's people and what they went through there while I tried to sleep in a very comfortable bed in a free country. For the last several weeks, I have been reading and rereading and rethinking through 2 Corinthians, studying it maybe like I never have before. The last time I read through it this past week, I read through asking myself this question, what worries Paul the most about the church? What, what keeps Paul up at night as he thinks about the church? And is it anything at all like what might keep Doug up at night? I was asking myself, what do the words on the page reveal about the worries in his heart? As I read through 2 Corinthians again, I said, is Paul most worried about numbers? Is he obsessed with the external numerical growth of the church in Corinth? Is he most worried about budgets and giving and receipts? Because he does talk about that in 2 Corinthians. He's taken up an offering. Is he most worried about keeping the right people happy at church? Did his concern for God's church weigh on him so heavy that he was preoccupied with it? And if so, what were his major concerns? And I, I would just encourage you this morning, church, to, to pause long enough this week to think, when, when I care about the church, what are my worries? Do I care enough that I actually feel the weight because I love the church that I feel some weight as I worry about things. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians 11? I'm going to try to argue this morning for Paul's greatest worry or anxiety or concern for the church and see where it lines up with ours. Now, as you're turning to 2 Corinthians 11, I'm, I'm going to tell you that in several places in 2 Corinthians, Paul mentions sleepless nights. But I... I think he mentions it in chapter 6 and chapter 11, but I think it's more related to his bivocational work as a pastor. I don't know for sure if Paul tried to do his ministry during the day and then stayed up at night working on leather and tents or whether he did his work during the day and then tried to do ministry at night. But it seems like his sleepless nights were oftentimes related to the fact that he was trying to make a living and minister the gospel. And while you're turning there, I want to try to show you his stress level as a pastor and because of his love for the church in, in the context of him writing to the church in Corinth. In chapter 11, I just want to put this in context, he's defending his pastoral ministry. If you're not terribly familiar with what was going on in Corinth, Paul had shared the gospel there and started the church, and then when he left, some others came in 
some other wannabe leaders. And they had really hurt the church, this young church. And he's writing back to this church, having to defend his ministry. He's having to argue, this is why you should follow me, not these newcomers. So in chapter 11, he's, he's defending his ministry, and he's doing it by saying, here's my credentials. Here's why you should follow me, church. So I want to I read what he said about his credentials because it's in this context that he mentions his stress for the church. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, we'll start with verse 19. We'll pick up what he's arguing. He says in verse 19, For you gladly bear with fools being so wise yourself. He's being a bit sarcastic here. You put up with fools because you guys are obviously so wise. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you or deceives you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we, we were much too weak for that. But Paul's arguing these people who, who, who are coming in and wanting to shepherd you as God's people, they're not even treating you in love, and yet you're following them. And we never treated you like that. But whatever anyone else does to boast of it, I'm speaking as a fool. Paul's saying, I can't believe I have to say this. This is ridiculous. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. He's, he's been driven to this place where he has to defend his ministry, and he hates to do it. And here's his credentials, church. Great labors, more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent in the open sea. I was on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers and robbers, in danger from my own people, the Jews and the Gentiles. I was in danger in the city. I was in danger in the wilderness. I was in danger at the sea and from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And here's how he sums it up. And apart from all these other things, the list could go on, but apart from all the other things I could tell you, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul's listing out his credentials, and he says, Here, here's my resume. Here's why you should trust me. And at the very end of it, he makes this amazing statement. Every single day of my life, I feel the weight, I feel the pressure of my concern for the church. I just want to stop for a minute and ask you, do, do you love God's church that much? That you feel on a regular basis your concern for the church? You're not on the sidelines of the church. You're fully vested. You're plugged in. And it's almost as if Paul's saying, there's all these horrible things happen to me. But more than all of that, what hurts more than all of that? What I feel more deeply than even the whips on my back or the rods or the shipwrecks? I love the church. 
and I hurt every single day because I have this concern for the church. I want to show you just quickly so you'll see both lists of his credentials that he lists in chapter 6. So flip back to chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. It's a, it's a very similar list. In chapter 6, starting with verse 3, he's trying to get these people to follow him, not, not follow the deceivers who've moved in into the fellowship. And he says in 6.3, we put no stumbling blocks, no obstacles in anyone's path so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, how does he commend himself? What's he put on his resume? Great endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God in our lives through honor and dishonor, slander, doesn't matter. In chapter 6 and chapter 11, here's what Paul's saying. Church, I'm begging you to not follow these false teachers. I'm begging you to follow me, and here's my credentials. It, almost everything Paul lists in his credentials could fall into two categories, either injuries or integrity. By injuries, he lists out riots and beatings and stonings. Last Sunday night, we studied the time he was stoned. This, he's referring back to when he was in Lystra and got stoned. Or integrity, and he mentions in 2 Corinthians, truthful speech and love and purity. You know what Paul's saying? Listen, I'm arguing that you should follow me rather than these newcomers because following Christ has cost me dearly, and I didn't defect. And you don't know that about these newcomers. I have been tested by the fire, and it has been a painful test, and I'm still preaching. And by the way, I love that in 2 Corinthians 6, I'm still kind. Church, he's gone through all of these awful experiences, and he's still a kind man. And he's still treating them with purity and truthful speech and love. You have a category of integrity and a category of injuries. And he said, I want you to look at both of these. These are my credentials. It's not things that many pastors would put on a resume today if they were trying to convince you to hire them as a pastor. Beatings and riots, but truthful speech and love and purity and integrity. So Paul's making this argument you go back to chapter 11, and he ends that with verse 28. I love the church so much that every single day of my life, I feel the weight of my concern for the church. It, it's as if he's saying, not every day did I take a beating, but every day I did feel the weight of my concern for the church. Not every day was I shipwrecked, but every single day, not a day goes by in my life, that I don't love God's people so much that I feel the weight of what it's like. So when I came across that in chapter 11, I just began to ask, ask myself, what, what is your great concern that you feel more heavily than all these other things? What is it you feel so heavily for the church? So if you're still in chapter 11, look back at verse 1. I think he actually gives us his greatest concern. I have no doubt he had many. 
But I think his greatest concern for the church comes in that very same chapter in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Once again, he's saying, I shouldn't have to do this. This is crazy, but I'm willing to do it. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you, ex you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul is arguing at the beginning of chapter 11 that he's anxious and he's concerned and he feels every day the pressure for God's redeemed people, now listen, to be pure. That's the weight he feels. Absolute purity in the church. In verse 2, he uses a, a wedding analogy. He paints a picture. He says in verse 2, When I shared the gospel with you for the very first time, when I came and preached in Corinth and planted the seeds and you guys came to faith in Christ and a church was started, when that happened, I wasn't done with you. I, church, I, I do worry about evangelists who work on a model where I come in and I preach the gospel and then I move on and I don't care a thing about what happens after that. Paul was an itinerant evangelist who cared deeply about the people he, he led to Christ three years ago and five years ago. And he says, when I introduced you to Christ, when I tied you to Christ, when by God's grace you came into God's family, I made a commitment. And my commitment was to present you as the church to Christ as a pure, spotless bride. That's a common analogy in the New Testament that the church is the bride of Christ and Christ is the groom who loved the church so much he died for his bride. Paul's picking up on an analogy that's often used in the Bible to represent us as the bride. But he's saying, I, I so committed on that day when you came to Christ, I committed to present you one day to the groom as an absolutely pure church. So pure that it's basically to use Paul's words, like a pure virgin bride. And then he says in verse 3, I'm afraid that's not happening. My fear that keeps me up at night, my concern is that that's not happening. You're not moving toward that as a church. As a pastor, missionary, and apostle, Paul had this commitment to protect the church and he says, I feel every day this pressure that that's not happening. I, I'm jealous for you. You know, people today in churches and pastors today get preoccupied with a lot of different things. They get upset with a lot of different things. They get anxious about a lot of different things. I think there's a group of people today that get anxious and upset and nervous and preoccupied and feel the pressures of all these things. And then I wonder over on the other side, how many of us are over here with Paul saying, my greatest concern, however, is for the absolute purity of the church. Paul says, I feel this every single day of my life. 
I'm fighting for the purity of the church. Because of the worthiness of the groom, he knows what the groom deserves in a bride. And guys, when, when we compromise and give, give halfway commitment to our one-day groom, the one we're going to be married to, to use the biblical analogy, we're telling Paul, this is not a big deal to us. Can't believe it keeps you up at night. Can't believe this is the stress you carry every day of your life. I, ju I just think we end up drifting over here to getting concerned about lots of other things that, that aren't unimportant, they're just less important. And Paul says, here, here's, my, here's my anxiety. Are you becoming a pure church? It reminds me of Acts chapter 5. We don't have to turn there. It's a story you'd be familiar enough with. That early baby church in Jerusalem was growing. And if you remember in Acts chapter 5, there was a couple in the church, a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And they introduced into that early church lying and deception and pride and hypocrisy. And they lied to their church. And God removed them from the church. You remember that? He actually took their lives, both of them, the husband and wife, on the same day. It's as if God was saying, don't ever make me choose between a large church and a pure church, because if you make me choose, I'll choose a pure church every time. Even if it means removing members by death, I want a pure church. The results were very clear. In Acts chapter 5, verse 11, Luke writes, and great fear came upon the whole church. And a few verses later in verse 13, he says, None of the rest of the people dared join them, but they held the people in high esteem. For several Sundays, they didn't have very many visitors at church. The rest of the people feared going to church, but they did hold the church in high esteem. God's actions were hard on the outreach program. But everybody knew that church is serious about holiness. Well, in 2 Corinthians 11, when you, when you get to verses 2 and 3, what I, what I want to try to do is give you just this morning the two non-negotiables for a pure church. Based on what he says here, there are other things that are important, but Paul seems to hone in on two things that are non-negotiables for an absolutely pure church. In verse 1, he said, I need you to bear with me. In verse 2, he says, I feel this divine jealousy for you. I'm obsessed about this. This is crazy. I promised you, you're engaged to one husband. And I'm going to try to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The first non-negotiable of a pure church is that you have a pure love for Christ. His fear was they were going to be drawn away from this pure love for Christ. Notice that he's not talking about an emotional, shallow, feely love. Okay, In verse 2, he says, I, I have this fear that like Eve in verse 3, you're going to be led astray in your thoughts. Verse 3 is all about their thoughts. I, I don't want you led astray in your thoughts from a pure devotion to Christ. It's not just singing the, an emotional song that stirs up your heart and makes you feel like you love Christ. 
Remember what the greatest commandment, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. We also have to be loving Christ with our mind. And Paul has this fear he carries every day that the church is going to be deceived and led away from a pure, simple, sincere devotion to Christ. Eve, with his analogy here, he goes to the Old Testament for an example, and he says Eve was deceived in her thoughts. Because what happened in the garden was that Eve believed something that wasn't true. But she believed it was true. That's what it means to be deceived. I don't believe Adam was deceived. The Bible never says he was deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam knew what he was doing. But she was led to believe something she did, she, that wasn't true, but for a moment she believed it. And Paul said, just like that happened to Eve, it could happen to you as a church. As the bride of Christ, we must have a genuine love for Christ. I, I appreciate Larry singing songs about our love for Christ. pure church has a pure love for Christ. Church, listen, it is not enough. It is not enough that you love your Sunday school class. And it is not enough that you love your church. And it's not even enough that you love the Bible. Do you love Christ? Do you enjoy Christ? You know, Sometimes I have to stop and ask, is it possible for a group of people who've experienced God's grace to stop loving Christ? What would that mean? I have to admit it's possible for churches to stop loving Christ the way they should. When you get to the book of Revelation, God inspired John to write seven short letters to seven different churches. Five of the seven had defected. Just Listen, just because there's a faithful church on this corner right now does not guarantee there will be a faithful church church on this corner in 20 years five of the seven in the book of revelation had defected and one of the letters the one to the church in ephesus he says i have this against you you have left your first love it's the very thing paul's worried about with the church in corinth you might stop loving christ you might be drawn away and deceived in your pure and sincere devotion to christ paul knew it was possible and he feared it. It's so important that in his first letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he ends the letter by saying this, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Boy, that's strong. If there's anybody in your fellowship that doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. Hmm. You know, I was just thinking about this this week as I was studying years ago, and I, I think almost very few in here would know this couple, so I can use them as an example. I had the privilege of taking couples for years through a book before they get married, and there was an engaged couple that I was taking through the book before they get married, and there's it's some great chapters and things you need to talk about. And One evening with this couple, I was talking about your faithfulness to each other and your commitment to each other and your actual love for each other, and the... Um, the girl, she just started opening up her heart and talking about how much she loved this guy. I mean, it was from her heart and her head. It, it, I mean, it was, it was truly moving. And she just was like, I mean, of all, I mean, he's like the only guy on the planet in my mind. And, and how much she was committed to him and loved him. And, 
And when she got finished, I mean, it, all, I know I shouldn't have, but I, just, I was just like, you're pitiful. That's all I could say to her. You're, you're pitiful. And he's like, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's a wonderful kind of pitiful. I was like, I, I know. It's, I mean, he was just beaming. He's like, this, this girl, I mean, she loves me this much. I was like, I, it makes me queasy just listening to you. I mean, do you know what you have in this girl loving you this much? She's pitiful. I wonder if the world ever looks at a church, even if, they, even if they don't want to join us, if they recognize how much we love Christ. I mean, really love Christ. And they might have to say, you know what, I don't get it. I think y'all are about half crazy. I think you're pitiful. But I will say this about you. You, you do love the Lord. I may, not, I may not agree with anything you stand for, but I cannot deny you passionately, sincerely, genuinely are devoted you enjoy your Savior. You love Him. And there is this chance that that love you had when you first came to Christ could cool over the years. And it can even cool as you grow in your knowledge of the Bible. It can even cool as you grow in your involvement in church. And we have to get back to the question, not do I love this or that, or do I love our pastor, or do I love missions, or do I... Do you love? Jesus Christ. If you don't, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let, let, let them be accursed. This is so central to what it means to be a Christian. It motivates everything else we do. And Paul says, I have this fear that you're not going to be a pure church, and the first thing that happens, the first domino that falls is that you lose your pure love for Christ. You get busy doing lots of other things, and pretty soon you're listening to people you shouldn't even listen to, because you've lost this love for Christ that results in a pure church. Well, verse 4, he mentions the second non-negotiable I'll mention this morning. And now I'll give us time to think about this. In verse 4, after talking about their pure and sincere devotion to Christ, he says, if somebody shows up at your church, if they come and they proclaim another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or you receive a different spirit, or you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it, he literally says, beautifully. You just put up with it beautifully. A pure church has to have a pure love for Christ, but secondly, it has to have a pure theology about Christ. It has to have a pure theology about Christ. He's saying, you're letting people come into your church and proclaim a different Jesus. And you accept it beautifully. You just sit there. You let people come in and preach a different gospel, a different cross, and you accept it beautifully. His fear was that they were too accepting as a church. His fear was they're too gullible as a church. There's no discernment. There's no filter. There's nobody stepping up saying, wait a minute, that's not right. For fear of making waves, maybe. Nobody would stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not the Jesus we heard. And... Notice, church, how subtle this is. Paul doesn't say they're preaching somebody else. They're still preaching Christ. It's just a different Christ. They're not saying, if you want to get saved, you need to put your faith in Marcus. It's not a different person. They're still using the right words. It's just a different take on Jesus. And Paul says, you guys just sit there and accept it. No discernment. No recognizing counterfeit from the real thing. 
So a pure church, the first non-negotiable is they actually have a pure love for Christ. They really do love Christ. And secondly, they have a pure theology about Christ. They figured out who he is and what he stands for and what he said. And they recognize when somebody wants to change that just a little bit and they won't accept it. Purity involves getting Jesus right. He says it involves getting God's spirit right. And it involves getting the gospel right. And Paul fears they're not doing that. When he says they proclaim a different Jesus and they want you to accept a different spirit, I think the spirit he's referring to there is when you became a Christian, you received God's spirit, and you guys are willing to receive any other spirit. And a little bit later in this chapter, he says Satan masquerades as an angel of light. They were actually letting demonic influence in and open to other spirits. Paul's like, what on earth is happening to this church I love, this church I took beatings for, this church I treated with kindness, this church I treated with purity, this church that every day I can't get you out of my mind because I love you so much. And you guys are just saying, we'll turn the pulpit over to whoever. And they don't even preach a real Jesus, and they don't even preach an accurate gospel, and you think it's okay. Can I just remind you that theology matters? Listen, next week, even what's taught here at Vacation Bible School matters. What's taught in every Sunday school classroom matters. What's taught here on Wednesday night to adults here or college kids there or youth over there, it matters. I, 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 I was sitting yesterday morning, um, had the privilege to do a, a Bible study for a business in Clinton, and one of the guys that was there is a youth minister at another church, and I, just, I thought of this just this morning as I was thinking about how this matters. He was telling us he took his students to a camp last week, and on the van ride back, he's just, he said, uh, one of my kids mentioned that in, in one of their classes, he was taught that Noah let lots of other people onto the ark, not just his family. And the youth minister was like, what? What did you hear taught? He said, my, my, my kid was like, yeah, it's... It, it was his family, but he opened it up and lots of other people got on. And you think, how can that be taught? And even this kid who was a relatively new Christian said, that, that can't be right, is it? Listen, what we say the Bible says matters on little things and big things. But when it comes to Jesus, we got to get Jesus exactly right. And if I could just say as a word of encouragement to our pastor, deciding to preach every verse through Luke is not a bad idea because when we get to the end of Luke, we ought to have a great picture of Jesus Christ. We're not skipping anything he said. We're not going to skip his hard parables. We're not going to skip his miracles. We're not going to skip the confrontations he had. We're going to know what he said and what he stood for and who he was. And if you don't know Jesus by the end of Luke, it's because you're not trying. We have to have a good view of Jesus. Listen, that's the difference between genuine religion and cults. They get a lot of things right, but they get Jesus wrong. And if you get Jesus wrong, I don't care what else you get right. And Paul says, I'm dying for you guys because you're losing your pure love for him, and you're also you're losing your pure theology about him. So everything that's taught and said about Christ matters. We need to have him in absolute focus. So when I've read through 2 Corinthians the last several weeks and I hear Paul's heart and 
maybe once a pastor, always a pastor. He's, he's like, listen, I pastored there for a while, and then God moved me on, but I'm writing back to you guys, and I hurt for you guys. Ministry for Paul was not a career path. It was a place he went to give his life away. And he so loved the bride of Christ. He, he knew how worthy the groom was. And he's like, listen, we have to be coming this bride that's going to be in love with the Lord. And we've got to make sure it's the right Lord. And you guys seem to not care. And that's what he's writing. And he gets very firm with them at times about this. So let me, let me just ask you this morning. Are you passionate like Paul for the purity of the church? You know, ultimately in this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, he's actually not talking about moral purity. He's talking about love, purity, and doctrinal purity. When there's so many people today who say, what churches that preach doctrine and churches that are worried about exactly what the Bible says and nobody's interested in that. Paul was very interested in that. So I just want to ask you this morning, do, has God worked a love in your heart for the rest of the church and for God's people that, that you feel the weight of it sometimes? church isn't something just that you do on Sunday. You, you feel the weight of your concern because you realize you're part of this bride thing. And the Lord is so worthy that we want to be coming a pure bride for him. We, we in a sense, want to, want to be like that pitiful fiance I was talking to years ago who just couldn't quit talking about this guy she was going to marry because she so loved him. Do you love Christ enough that you feel the weight for your church? Let me ask you this morning, has your love for Christ cooled any? Was there a time in your life when you loved Christ more than you do now? You may still love him, but you, you could look back at a time when you loved him more. You loved him passionately. And you're still active and you're still involved in church, but, but your, your personal love for Christ... I mean, when I look at those credentials, Paul's saying, I, all of these things happened to me, and after all of these things happened to me, I still love Christ. And do you have a good grasp on the gospel and on who Christ is? Does it matter to you that you have a good picture of who Jesus Christ actually is so you'll recognize if someone comes and preaches another Christ? Do you have a good grasp on the gospel so you know if someone came and proclaimed a different gospel, you'd be like, no, that's not going to work here. That doesn't belong here. We know who Christ is, and we know what the gospel is, and that's not going to work. And we can say that in love to people who get it wrong, but we have to say it. And in our times today, when everything has to be accepted and everything has to be tolerated, we look so narrow-minded when we say, no, it's got to be the exactly right Jesus and exactly right gospel, and I deeply love him. And when those two things come together, a right theology about Christ and a true love for Christ, you end up with a pure church. And Paul's dying to have a pure church in Corinth. And I hope we are too. But don't lose sight of the fact that it boils down to a love for him. I heard a guy say one time when he had finished about six years in seminary, he said, somehow seminary had the effect on me of gaining more and more knowledge but cooling my love for Christ. 
1 Corinthians talks about that. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We have to be careful because one of these is theology, a correct theology about Christ. Knowledge matters. Truth matters. And the other one is this love for Christ and to keep both of those moving forward. So it's not all just head knowledge and it's all not just love. It's love based on truth and it's truth that informs our love. And those two things come together and Paul says you, you can be a pure church. And he was so afraid that the church in Corinth wasn't doing that. And you might be here this morning and say, listen, I, I don't know that I'm part of the church. When you talked about Paul sharing the gospel and inviting these people and connecting them to Christ, that's never personally happened to me. I've never come to the cross and had my sins forgiven and been in Christ and been part of the bride of Christ, loving Christ, following Christ. It's never happened to me. That, that could happen this morning. Listen, the church collectively is the bride of Christ, but you have to come to Christ individually. And you may have never done that. And when we sing our last song here in a minute as we worship the Lord, our soon-to-be husband, it could be that God would lead you to come down here and take Skylar as the pastor or me by the hand or someone else and say, I need to talk to somebody about what it means to have Christ in my life, to have my sins forgiven, and to be made new. That has to happen to every individual to be right with God. But if you are a believer this morning, I, I would just beg you to consider what, what are the weighty things about the church that sit on your heart daily even, as Paul says? Is there anything that you're so committed to God's church that you feel the weight of these things? And if so, would you take time this morning to say, God, I, I mean, we sang that song, Oh, how I love the Lord, oh, how I love you. I, I mean, are those just words or do you really love the Lord? Maybe take this last song just to think through that for a little bit. Your love for the Lord and making sure you have a right view of him. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, I'm so grateful for a man who cared about the church and felt the weight of it. People who don't care about the church have no idea what that feels like, just to live every day with this gnawing pressure. What about the church? What's the next danger? Are there any threats to the church? How do we become a more pure church? How do we love Christ more? Every day those can eat at a man like Paul. Those questions eat at faithful pastors. They are worried. They do care. It's, it's not just a job. But God, for all of us who are part of the church, those could all be things that we pray about daily and we're concerned and we feel the weight of them. And God, I thank you for the warning that a faithful church one day doesn't mean it'll be a faithful church in the future. We have to be discerning. Five out of seven defected in the book of Revelation. God, that's, that's a real warning to me. We want to end well. We want to pass this church and other faithful Bible-believing, Christ-honoring churches. We want to pass them on to the next generation of believers intact and whole and healthy. God, make us pure. We are your bride. And we live in a very filthy world. We want to be different. Help us stay true to the gospel. Help us get Christ right. Help us grow in our love for him every day. In Christ's name, amen.